What's up competitors? I want to take a quick minute to tell you about our friends over at True Labs. If you're not familiar with the group, I want to challenge you to jump back to season two, episode 81 with True Labs founder, Brandon Pogue. I've been a longtime supporter of Brandon, of True Labs, of using their products, and now they've stepped up as a sponsor of the Compete Everyday podcast. Even better, they're giving you 10% off any order online with the code CED. So this specific episode, I want to tell you about their energy supplement. So throughout the day, usually I would wake up, have a cup of coffee in the morning or pre-workout, and then right after lunch, I'm having another giant cup of coffee. I switched it to start trying True Lab's energy formula. And honestly, I like it a ton better. And it doesn't have me feeling like I've just chugged cup after cup after cup of coffee. True Labs Energy has natural ingredients to give you long-lasting energy and helps sustain mental clarity and honestly helps me keep from crashing when I get to 4, 5, 6 o'clock in the afternoon. So if you want to give it a shot, if you want to support this week's sponsor of the show, visit truelabs.com, that's T-R-U-L-A-B-S.com, and use code CED to get 10% off your order. They have pre-workout, they have all-day energy formulas, and they even have this awesome sleep formula to help you sleep like a baby at night. Thank you to True Labs for sponsoring the show, supporting us, and now let's get after this week's episode. What's up, competitors? Have you ever considered the idea that just maybe success doesn't equal happiness? Every day is a competition against your pride, comfort zone, fear, complacency, snooze alarms, bad habits, bad relationships, and more. This podcast is for the ambitious, willing to compete every day to make an impact in their career, health, relationships, and life. Each week, Compete Every Day founder Jake Thompson interviews leaders in business, fitness, psychology, and sports to explore what championship performers can teach us about making winning changes in life. In life. By listening today, you're deciding to start competing for your best life. What's up, competitors? I am excited to get to welcome to the show today a dear friend, an author, speaker, uh, and just all-around badass, Laura Gassner-Odding. Before I get a chance to introduce Laura, her book, Limitless, and a little bit of today's conversation around success, happiness, and all the pursuits that we find ourselves in today, I want to remind you that if you are not part of the Compete community yet, please do me a favor, check us out. If you're on Facebook, facebook.com slash groups slash Compete Every Day, it'll get you connected with thousands of other competitors who are driven every single day to be better than yesterday. You can be encouraged, get equipped with additional information and resources, as well as be challenged by other people that are pursuing greatness that want to hold you accountable so that you don't just talk about the things you're going to do. You share the successes you have and the things that you've done. Because talk is cheap. Action, as we know, is where the magic is. So join us at facebook.com slash group slash compete every day. You can find that link uh, down in the show notes along with ways that you can support the show. A fun little discount code for anyone looking to grab some compete every day gear this month. 
as well as show notes for this and links to Laura's book that I just can't rave enough about, the book Limitless. It's a fantastic read. It's a short read, so you can pick it up, dive into it, and help you if you ever just honestly feel stuck with where you are in life, with where you are in your career. If you've ever had that feeling of being stuck, Laura's book is perfect for you. So I've rambled a little bit about what we're going to talk about. Let me tell you more about Laura. She is a globally touring professional speaker. Uh, She is the founder of Limitless Possibility. It's a niche consulting firm that works with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, executives, and thought leaders that just help them honestly get unstuck and start achieving the type of results they want. You can check her out on social media. We have all of her links below. Uh, It's at HeyLGO is her social handles, but You're just going to love this conversation because she's a rock star. She's going to tell us about why she didn't get into running until she was almost 40 and how that didn't stop her from crushing some marathons. And so the next time you want to use your age as an excuse, I want you to think about Laura and what you're about to hear today. So without further ado, I'm excited to welcome to the show, Laura Gassner Awning. Laura, welcome to the show today. Hey, it's great to be here. I have, uh, I've been looking forward to this. We obviously got connected last August uh, through an event in New York and just immediately hit it off. Uh, I'm so excited for you uh, in this book launch. I'm excited to introduce more of your story to our listeners. But before we kick off, I'm curious about just personally the first time you ever felt in life that you had limitless potential. Oh, wow. That is such a good question. Um, I would say that it was the time in August when I ate the chicken Parmesan leftover on everybody else's plate at that dinner that we were (laughs) sitting at, which I know is when I really earned your true respect. But um, the first time I knew that I had limitless potential, I I would say was probably when I um when I tried something that was uncomfortable for me and I didn't die. And honestly, it was when I walked in to my boss's office in like the big marquee search firm and said, Hey man, we got to do this differently because there's a smarter and faster and more profitable way. There's more authenticity. There's more integrity. If we do the work that we're doing in a different way. And he went, yeah, um, no, thank you. (laughs) And, and I had in that moment, this realization that I was not actually part of the solution for my clients, but I might've actually been part of the problem for them and walked out with like, you know, the Jerry Maguire moment with, you know, like the fishbowl and the manifesto and basically said, I can do this differently. And I should do this differently. And if I don't do this differently, who else will? And it's sort of a funny story because that's when I launched my own firm, but I was like 11 months pregnant. And that's why I named the firm this terrible, awful nonprofit professionals advisory group because I wasn't quite thinking straight. And it's also a funny story because before that I like worked in the White House. So you would think there was like a moment earlier in my career when I felt limitless, but honestly, it was the moment when I walked in and I just went, no, there's a better way. And I have to be the one to do it. I love that. I love that. Yes. And and you mentioned that you worked in the White House. I hadn't realized that about you until I was listening to an older interview. You have a very interesting working career. So I'd love for you just to introduce yourself a little bit to our guests. Tell us a, a little bit about where you came from and now what you're doing. Well, hello. My name is Laura Gassner-Otting. 
<laughs> um, I come from Miami, <laughs> which you would not know based on the 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 the, the glow in the dark pale skin that I have. But um, I uh, I have sort of a really strange career because when I was growing up, I grew up you know in the seventies and eighties and was sort of righteously indignant about the way the world should be and um, and and really thought that I the models of leadership I saw were elected officials. You know, they were like CEOs and whatever, but but like the people that were held up as leaders, public leaders were elected officials. And I thought, okay, they're the ones who solve the problems. And here I am righteously indignant about the problem. So I should become an elected official and solve the problems. And so I thought I would become the first female United States Senator from the great state of Florida. That was my plan. And I was told by, I was told by a teacher early on that I was pretty argumentative you won't be surprised to find out I told her she was wrong, but then I, I, I should become a lawyer. So I, became, I, I went to law school and as soon as I got to law school, I looked around and I thought, ah, this is not where I want to be. I've made a huge mistake. I don't belong here. And so I did what most people do when they realize they've made terrible mistakes is I dated a terrible person. I, I dated one of those guys who you should never, ever date. And one day it was raining. I had ridden my bike to campus and he said, hey, I'll put your bike in the back of my IROC Z, right? <laughs> the kind of guy he was. But, and I'll give you a ride home. But first, I want to stop at this guy's local campaign office. He's, he's running for president. So kids, before the internet, you had to actually stop at like a local office and pick up like pieces of paper to understand like what a candidate stood for. So he drives me to this tiny little campaign office in Gainesville, Florida, and I walk in and in that tiny office, there's this like little black and white TV in the corner where then Governor Bill Clinton has given us some passionate speech about how there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with America. And his solution was this idea of community service in exchange for college tuition. And I went, oh my God, I don't need to be the solution. I don't need to solve all the problems. This guy needs to be elected. That needs to happen. And so I dropped out of law school. I sort of volunteering on the campaign. Um, I'll give you the biggest yada, yada, yada in history. And I end up in the White House. <laughs> and, and so that was the first real like full-time job I had. Crazy. I was there for four years, um, helped create AmeriCorps. A million people have served in AmeriCorps. Really incredible. One of the proudest things I've done in my career. And then I thought I would go back out on the campaign trail um, in 1996. And my mentor at the time said, well, you're kind of too old to get back on a campaign bus and eat cold pizza and sleep on high school gymnasium floors. Mind you, I was 26 at the time, but you know, that's like, that's like ancient in campaign, advanced uh -huh. campaign years. And you're kind of too young to be the domestic, uh, the domestic policy advisor. So go talk to my friend, Arnie Miller. He runs a search firm. They do exclusively nonprofit work. You'll go, you'll hide out for four years and come back and do something big on the Gore campaign. So I said, great. I went to go talk to Artie. Five minutes into the interview, I realized his job is in Boston. The boy that I'm dating now, who does not drive an IROC Z, <laughs> was going to move to Boston um, to pursue a PhD. And I thought, oh, awesome. I want this job. So I became a headhunter. I had no idea what it was when I said yes, that I would take the job. But I had, you know, a Rolodex like a choker horse and no real skills whatsoever. So what do you do? You, you know go into matchmaking. 
And so I did that. And that's really this crazy thing that led me into doing executive search for nonprofits, which I did there for four years and then launched my own firm, ran that for 15 years, sold it to my people a few years ago. And then I got asked by our mutual friend, Hampson Webster, to do a TEDx talk. And that talk got some attention and that attention got me offers to speak for money. And then I went, wait, this is a job? <laughs> Tell me more about this magical job where you fly all over the world and stand on stages and people pay you money to talk about your ideas. I like the sound of this. And so this is what I've been doing for the last few years. And what I, what I love about the journey is, is more, I love the, the background of your TEDx talk and your son's involvement and how that piece kind of came together. But what I'm really inspired by is you started going out and speaking and now you decided, I've got to get this book out. I have this message within me. It's, it's, we've talked about it beforehand of the editing process and going through it uh, before we hopped on air. But what finally pushed you to say, I've got to get this message of being limitless out to the world? Oh, well, uh, massive imposter syndrome really is, is what, is what ha made it happen. So Tamsin asked me to do this talk and I was like, oh no, no, no way. I have no interest. And my son who was sitting next to me at the time when I picked up the phone on speakerphone, because, you know, I'm a good mom <laughs> driving to pick up the phone on speakerphone. Um, he hears me say this and I hang up the phone and he's like, uh, so uh, mom, don't you always tell me that I have to do things that scare me? And don't you always tell me that uh, if it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you? And don't you always tell me that life starts on the other side of the fear? And I was like, yes. <laughs> And he's like, so uh, what gives, mom? And I'm like, yeah, I got to do this, don't I? <sighs> so I call Tamsin back. Six weeks later, I'm standing on the stage, no notes, no net. And I crushed it for like 11 and a half minutes. And then there's a moment where I like look kind of the stage left. And if you know me, you can see that I have this look of panic on my face. Like, I don't know what to, I don't know what, to, I don't know what to say next. Like I totally forgot the next line, but then I, I brought it back and it came back and then I crushed it for 20 more seconds. And that was a moment where I was like, Oh boy, I, this was interesting. And I kind of like this. And somebody stage left laughed when I told a joke and Oh, I want more of that. Like it was just such a great feeling. And, and so I started speaking in places and then I started noticing that all the people that I really respected in the speaking world had books, they had PhDs, they had books, they had like real stuff. And I felt like that kid who was leaving the white house who had no ostensible skills, but just a big Rolodex. And I kind of felt like I was still wearing my mother's hand-me-down suits that I walked into the oval office with, right? Like I, my shoulder pads were smaller, but my imposter syndrome was like just as big. And so I, I talked to our, another mutual friend, Mitch Joel, and I was like, I think I need to have a book. And he said, well, you've got 25 years of work experience of doing, of studying, recruiting, uh, uh, stewarding leaders, doing massive amounts of career change. That's your book. And I was like, ah, yeah, you're like, a, you're like a, a white guy. And I feel like you don't, I, you don't understand imposter syndrome in the same way. <laughs> and, and he said, good, go talk to my friend, Rohit Bhargava. He's a publisher. He'll tell you, he'll give you some ideas. So I call Rohit and Rohit said, great, you should write this book on confidence, right? This thing that you speak about on stage ironically, since I'm having imposter syndrome. But before you do that, um, we're doing a guidebook series and we would love for you to write the book on purpose. And I thought, well, okay. I wrote a book about transitioning from corporate to nonprofit work before. 
that book's out of print now. I should probably get it back into print. Fine, I'll do it. So I start doing the book and I, and the guidebook, as you know, is like chapter one, problem, solution, chapter two, problem, solution, chapter three, problem. And purpose is this like big, massive idea that you can't really shoehorn into the guidebook format. But we tried. And I worked with an editor who I fought with on a daily basis, trying to shoehorn it into this idea. But because that editor fought with me on a daily basis, she helped me realize that there was like this bigger thing that I was trying to do. So I called Rowett and I said, you know, I don't think I'm the author for you. I don't think this book's going to work. I think you shouldn't, we shouldn't do this. You should, you should fire me. And he said, I agree. <laughs> and I went, wait, what? <laughs> that wasn't the answer that I wanted. And he said, but I think you're onto this bigger idea and we want to do it as a big idea book in hardback in the spring when big idea books come out. And I said, wait, what? <laughs> and then I called Clay A. Bear in a moment of panic. And I said, what am I going to do? Oh my God. And he said, well, what do you want people to feel like after they've read your book? And after 45 minutes of going back and forth and telling him that I wanted people to stop being limited by everybody else's ideas of what success should be and what they should do and what they should, must do and what happiness means, I just want them to like live their own lives. He's like, so you want them to be limitless? You want them to ignore everybody, carve their own path and live their best life? And I was like, yes. So in 45 minutes, my book went from purpose, doing work that matters, to limitless, how to ignore everybody, carve your own path, and live your best life. And I said, Clay, I love you so much, and I never get to talk to you nearly enough, but I need to hang up this phone right now, like right the fuck now, and write that book. And then that book poured out of me in three weeks. Oh, man. I feel like everyone has that feeling when they get off the phone or out of an interaction with Clay. You're like, I like spending time with you, but... I've got to go write everything down and make sure I don't lose it. Absolutely. I mean, it was, it was, it's, and it's such a meta moment because I was so limited by the title of the expectation of the guidebook format that when I finally got rid of that, then I was able to do this thing that is so consonant with who I am that, you know, somebody asked me the other day how long the book took to write. And I said, three weeks. And they were like, well, that's crazy. Like you wrote a best-selling book in three weeks. Like does everything you touch turn to gold? And it's like not like by a long shot, like it took me three weeks to write it, but it took me 25 years and three weeks to create it, right? Like it's like a totally different thing. And I think we see that all the time with whatever we're doing, whether it's careers or family or athletic pursuits or anything, that it's all the like stuff that you do in the dark, behind the scenes and like the middle of the night when nobody sees. It's like the hard yards of getting up at four in the morning to like do the grunt work. That's the stuff that creates the overnight success. That is 100% accurate. And one of the things I loved that you just mentioned is, is once you got rid of almost those limiting beliefs of what it was supposed to be, what it had to fit within, you were able to create it, which is obviously a theme throughout your book of life and career and finding all of this. And so I love the fact that that personal experience is what built this because there's a lot of speakers that have books and, and some of our mutual friends have some fantastic books, but there's others that they see the need as a speaker to have a book. And so they just publish something without caring who gets it. And it's very evident reading your book. You care about that in reader because of the amount of effort that you put into creating it. And, and so I think anyone that reads it can is awakened to that. And so I want to ask you about some pieces of it 
Because what I found interesting is right now, as I'm going through my writing process, I was spending today and yesterday writing on, on gratitude and how that influences a successful competitor. And it's something you've talked about in your book. And we have this idea of success. And if we reach this level of success, everything's going to change for us. For me, I struggled with that mightily in my, in my 20s, especially in early 30s of like, the grass is always greener. Yeah, it's okay what I've done now, but I'm always on the lookout for more. How did you deal with that in your own life to where you were able to, I guess, embrace that gratitude? And it wasn't that you weren't pursuing more, but you were starting to appreciate what you had. So it's an interesting question because for me, and I think this comes down really to like the backbone of, of the framework in the book. When I, when I founded my search firm, um, I did it because I had this idea of the way it should be. And I wanted to live a life that manifested my values through my work. I wanted to be able to have work that contributed to spending time with my family to like, be, like, you know, my, 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 I, like I said, I was, I, uh, my, my youngest was six weeks old when I actually like made the first announcement and signed the first contract. And, you know, <laughs> Pro tip, that's a terrible time to start a business. <laughs> but, you know, I also, like, it, 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 I couldn't not do it. And, you know, and I wanted to be able to make money um, that was meaningful to me, but there was a difference between the need to make money and the want to make money, right? So like need to make us table stakes. My bank won't take good karma in exchange for mortgage, no matter how many times I ask. Um, but there's the want to make number and there's a huge delta between the two. And when I founded the firm, I founded it because I wanted to create maximum impact in the world. I wanted to change the world for the better, number one. Number two, I wanted to have maximum flexibility to be able to be present with a growing family and to be able to, you know, exercise and to, um, um, to, to, to make dinner for the kids and to, you know, just like be able to travel the world and do the stuff that I want to do. I cared about profitability, but I wanted to maximize profitability in a way that was intelligent for the way that our firm was doing the work. But for me, when I said, am I doing everything I can and do I want to do more? And is the grass always greener? I had to really go back and say, well, what matters to me? does maximum money matter to me or am I going to leave some money on the table because that allows me to have maximum impact and maximum, maximum flexibility. Fast forward 15 years when I sold the firm to my team, we did a whole valuation process and um, it was a difficult, it was a difficult exit because it was a professional services firm I and mean, it's a really hard thing to sell. I was the founder. When the founder leaves, is the business still going to be successful? And my business partner said, you know, we could write you a check for the amount of the valuation, but then what if you leave and the business flops? right? We're stuck holding the bag. We could just close the business and start it again and do something else. And we don't have to worry about, we don't have to pay you a dime. And I'm, I'm super proud of the fact that everything I've ever created over the course of a 25 year career still exists. I've worked very hard to build institutions and not cathedrals, but I had this moment where I got really angry with my partner. And I was like, what are you talking about? That's what the business is worth. And that's what you should pay me. And I was so upset because I, I, I attached my personal value to the price tag of the business until one day my husband said, you never ran the business for maximum profitability. Why are you trying to sell it for maximum profitability? That doesn't make any sense. Sell it for maximum impact and maximum flexibility. And so I'm proud to say that I ended up selling them this firm for a dollar 
plus a percentage of revenue for the following five years, which meant I still have skin in the game. They still have skin in the game. We're all supporting each other, but I was able to sell it for a dollar free and clear so that I could maximize that flexibility so I could go off and do something else. I'm also proud to say that the firm has thrived so much as I've been gone, I should have left years earlier, that I'll probably actually in the end make more money than I would have just if they gave me a check for the valuation. And, and so, yes, I could have pushed for more and I could have fought for more in that moment. But the truth is, I had to sit back and say, well, is it the dollar amount that matters? Is it the number of books that I sell? Is it the number of stages I get on? Or does it, to me, is what matters the number of lives that I change or you know, the, 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 the outreach that I have to certain kinds of people and what that allows me to do? So it's all a long way of saying that, yeah, the grass is always greener, but I think it depends on whose yard you're looking at. I love that. I love that. We, I had a conversation with a guest uh, just the other day and we were talking about impact and, and the desire, just like you've shared of making that impact. And he, he made the comment, he said, you know, if we're worried about the other side and, and we're not able to live in gratitude, when is it enough? Like, is it a thousand, a thousand people you've impacted are enough to say, okay, I'm, I'm good now. Well, what about the 999 that came before? Does that mean they aren't? He said, as, as long as one is enough, if you're making that impact, it's great. He said, just know what you want to do, where that priority lies in terms of the impact you made. One of the things I think is going to be very interesting for our listeners and, and that I love is your running journey and your athletic journey <laughs> because it came later in life. And a lot of times we get into this limiting belief that how old we are should determine when we start doing new things. Like if we're at some point in life, man, once you're past your 20s, you can't try that anymore. Once you're in your 30s or your 40s, you, you can't try that anymore. You got into running late. And not only that, like you were sharing just the other day online, like these back-to-back -back images of your first race and now, what got you going in the first place running it? And tell our listeners just a little bit about that because I think it's incredibly inspiring. Uh, well, <laughs> so I ran my first mile of my life, like of my life when I was 38 years old. And I'm sure your listeners are like, what? That's bullshit. She must've gone to PE class growing up. But I was that kid who had like 7,964,872 excuses, like carefully written <laughs> in a journal about all the reasons that I couldn't run and do like the president's physical fitness challenge and all those things. I mean, that was just, they were, it was bad. And I was never like fat. I was never thin. I was just kind of there. And at 38 years old, I'd had a couple kids. I spent, you know, all this time on airplanes. Like everything just started to hurt a little. And then one day I walked into my kid's elementary school and I saw the principal. And the principal was this woman named Ellen who was 65 years old. And Ellen was looking fine, right? I was like, what is going on? I'm like, either you, like, you've lost a ton of weight. So either you've been really sick or there's a new man in your life and you look way too good to have been really sick. So like, what's his name? And she's like, well, actually there is a new man in my life and his name is Mike. <laughs> coach Mike. And then Ellen proceeds to drag me to the nastiest, dirtiest, dankest, dustiest basement gym in the Boys and Girls Club where we do this like hellacious boot camp for 50 minutes. And at the end of the 50 minutes, Coach Mike gives you a little packet of like 37 teeny little straws and you have to run around this gym in loops 
37 times each time throwing a little straw in the bucket to, you know, have your numbers. And he would stand there watching and make sure you didn't throw five of them down. <laughs> I tried that. And it took me six full weeks before I could actually run 37 times around this damn gym without like stopping and like heaving and throwing up. And then I did it and I was like, Ooh, I bet if I could string three of these together, I could do a 5k. And I say do a 5K, not run a 5K, because during this first 5K, there were guys with double joggers passing me on the uphills. I mean, it was slow. But at the end of that 5K, I was like, what if I could do two of these? I could do a 10K. And then I did that. And then I did a half marathon. And then I ran three marathons. Craziness. All within the space of two and a half years. And so what happens when you go from not running at all to running three marathons in two and a half years is um, you get a lot of injuries. <laughs> so I had a lot of injuries and I went to a local gym and I, I, I bemoaned my, my, my tale of woe to the manager. And she's like, well, let me connect you with the trainer. And that trainer helped me to learn how to lift weight for the first time in my life. Um, I like, I remember the first time I like lifted a, a like a, a hex bar, a deadlift hex bar. And he's like, it's not a squat. And I was like, what do you mean it's not a squat? Like I couldn't figure out how to do it. But he's on this Olympic rowing campaign and he started talking to me about rowing. And I thought, well, that's sort of interesting. And so I did this indoor rowing regatta, like you get on an erg and you do a 2K as fast as you can. And I placed sixth in my age group for international women. And then I tried out for my local rowing team and didn't make it because ergs don't float. And then I learned how to row on a barge. And the next year I came back and I've been on a competitive women's rowing team for a few years now and, you know, medal in international competitions. And it's hilarious because we get on the water and the coach will pull up to us in the launch and be like, athletes, here's what we're going to do today. And I'm like, oh my God, athletes, he's talking to me. <laughs> like I still, it's hilarious that I am approaching 50 years old and I've discovered this multitude inside of me that I didn't know. And so you asked me when the first time I thought I was limitless was, and it was when I left in this moment of rage. And, and, and I would say the second time was really when I got to mile 20 of my first marathon and I went, well, this is as far as I've gone in training. Never run further than this before. I don't know what happens next. Am I going to die? <laughs> I'm not sure. And there are these two voices inside of you, one of which says, you're going to do this. Like, no matter what, walk, crawl, run, you're going to be a marathoner for the rest of your life. And then there's this other voice inside of you that goes, what? fuck were you thinking? You're going to die. <laughs> Another hour? No way. This is my first marathon when it was 97 degrees. So I was not entirely completely lucid at this moment. But that's the moment when you realize what you're made of. Like one of those voices gets to win and you're the only one who gets to decide in that moment. And so I think that's probably the second time I realized I was limitless was when I was like, you know what? I'm cool crawling across the finish line. <laughs> I just got to get there. I love that. That's what I wanted to ask is what, what made the tipping point in the right favor in that moment? Oh, sheer stubbornness probably. So I ran because I'm, I, so I, the, the three marathons I ran were Boston and Chicago two Boston and one Chicago. And any of your marathon runners out there are going to go like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. The math doesn't work. You have to qualify for Boston. 
I'm slow. Again, men with double joggers passing me. So I live in Boston and um, I, 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 so I ran for charity and there's, there are some statistics and I don't remember them exactly, but it's something like runners who run for charity finish like, you know, 50% more than, you know, runners who are just running on their own. And I think some of that's just because you end up with this public commitment strategy. I mean, over the course of the two marathons I ran in Boston, I raised $45,000 for nonprofits that I love. So I collected money from hundreds of people and I had people the whole day that were like tracking me, you know, I mean, no like, walking and off. I, yeah. And I saw them on the course and like, I couldn't not finish right? I mean, they gave money. Like, and, and I think at, at a certain point, I think you just, I mean, I'm kind of like a ride or die sort of person. I mean, I think your listeners are probably hearing my stories and going, okay, she is not somebody who doesn't do things a hundred percent. I mean, I'm like, I'm all in when I'm all in, I'm all in. And like, I learned how to row. I go competitive rowing. I decide to run. I'm going to do a marathon. Like I'm just maybe a little psychotic, but I do believe that if any, if something is worth doing, it's worth bringing your best to. And if you're not bringing your best to it, I mean, that's why I love Compete Every Day so much because I, I, you, you don't just like hang out on the sidelines every day. Like you compete every day. Like either you're in the arena or you're not. And I don't know that there's much in between. And so I feel like let's just get in the arena. It's much more fun. Much more fun. It, it's funny. The, um, have you seen Brene Brown's uh, Netflix special? I just watched it last night. So it's on my list to watch this coming weekend and, but I've seen the clips and the clip that she had of like, unless you're in the arena with me, like, I don't care about your judgment or your opinion or any of that because you haven't stepped in here and you're right. Like the ones you're all in or all out, like there's for us, there's no in between you're, you're competing for those goals that life, or you're going to be on the sidelines critiquing everyone. Why not get in there if you get one life at it? So absolutely. I just feel like we all have this one big juicy life and you can spend it sitting on your couch watching Netflix or you can spend it getting in the dirt and getting your ass kicked. And I'm all about getting my ass kicked because I feel like it's in those moments when you fail and you fall. Like, you know, there are all these people that say, tell me what you would do if you knew you wouldn't fail and I'll show you your passion. And that's horseshit. I think show me what you would do if you knew for sure you would fail that's and then you would get back up and do it again and get back up and do it again until you perfect it. That's your passion. And isn't our passion worth that? I say, yeah. Every time, every time. It's the, it's the ones that are willing to step in knowing failure is inevitable or even likely that's far and away worth it. I mean, it's the, the stand-up comedian's routine. The only way they get better is going into a club and bombing jokes to say, okay, that one doesn't work. This delivery doesn't work. How do I get better at it? And it's through that process that they become great. Laura, one, I could talk to you all day. Two, I know our listeners have got to be nearing the end of their show and, and their drive. So quick heads up, tell us this book, Limitless. One, I've recommended it to everyone, but who is this book for? Who did you write this book for so that our listeners sitting there is like, that's me. So my book is for anybody who feels stuck, who feels a bit of malaise, who feels a little bit like, you know, I checked all the boxes along everybody else's path to everyone else's success. And I've got one on paper is supposed to be the right life, but it sure doesn't feel that way. And maybe it's because I built this great life that isn't really the life I want. So it's really for anyone who's feeling like there's got to be 
more. I've got to be meant for more. This can't be all there is. Anybody who's looking to like make a change and feel more present and more purposeful in things that they do should check this out. I love it. And we will absolutely be linking to it in the show notes. Uh, Stick around till the end. I'll have details on how you can win your own copy. Laura, how can people find you and get connected with you online? Um, I am on all the socials at Hey L G O. So Laura Gassner Odding, my initials, H E Y, Hey L G O. They can find me at Hey L G O.com. And if they want to figure out what's limiting them, they can go to a little assessment that I put together, limitlessassessment.com. And I'll say that again for the drivers, limitlessassessment.com. It's a quiz. It takes about 15 minutes and it'll tell you exactly where you may be stuck and give you some tips about things that you can do to get unstuck. Love it. Thank you so much for coming on the show this week. Thanks so much. It's been great fun. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Compete Everyday Podcast. Visit CompeteEverydayPodcast.com to learn how you can get connected with other everyday competitors. Contact the show and find resources to help compete for your best life.